The book fair is just around the corner, and on Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock on the campus of Miami-Dade College will be a conversation about uh, a new book that was just released from uh, John Lewis and Andrew Aiden. And Andrew is on the line. And Andrew, welcome to WLRN. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's good to be with you. Unfortunately, John Lewis, uh, Congressman John Lewis, he spent uh, many years in the House of Representatives and uh, a prominent civil rights act- activist. He passed away uh, in 2020. But you work closely with him on this new book, correct? Yeah, Congressman Lewis and I were close for many, many years. I worked on his congressional staff for more than 13 years, and this was our fourth book together. Fourth book. That's right. You had a trilogy called March, and uh, it, these these aren't your these. I, they're called graphic novels, and I, I don't think that's a great term for them, but because they are really fascinating books. And uh, whose idea was it to to make these graphic novels? Uh, well, I think the term nowadays folks will use is graphic memoir, and it all started back in uh, 2008. Um, I was serving as a congressman's press secretary on his reelection campaign, and. You know, the big question on that campaign was, how do we teach young people about what John Lewis did? Um, Folks didn't know uh, the John Lewis that we celebrate today was not that John Lewis from 2008. And so when he told me about a comic book called Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story, I started asking, why isn't there a John Lewis comic book? And it took a little while, but I managed to convince him that he should do it. And he said, I'll do it, but only if you write it with me. Did you have experience writing? Not at all. I mean, I had written other stuff. But never like a full scale graphic memoir. I, I'd written, you know, a campaign speech or an ad or his tweets. I actually started off in his office uh, answering his mail, um, which I think is is really where I, I kind of cut my teeth in learning how uh, to write in his voice um, and, and the way in which he writes and the way in which he speaks. Now, the first three graphic novels, uh, March, uh, they apparently came to, with some acclaim. Was that expected or was that a surprise? Um, I think it was just a, you know, it, it was, um, I think John was realizing his full potential. Um, you know, he'd written several books before, um, but these really stood out. It's the first graphic novel uh, to win the National Book Award, the first graphic novel to receive a Robert Kennedy uh, Book Award. And then, I mean, the, Amer- the librarians were really our gift. They, they uh, gave March the Prince uh, Award, the Cybert Medal. Um, the Yalsa Excellence in Nonfiction, two Credit Scott King honors. It, it was pretty astounding. And I think the thing that made it the most uh, personally successful was how happy it made John Lewis to have his life and his creative work receive that sort of acclaim when um, he'd, never, he'd never really gotten that uh, part of his life rewarded in that way. Did it accomplish what you wanted to get more people involved with John Lewis's work? Absolutely. It's probably the most widely taught graphic novel in America now. Um, But I think our bigger mission was really about inspiring young people to understand their power and to organize a new nonviolent revolution. And I think what we saw in 2020 um, with uh, young people protesting in numbers we'd never seen before the congressman really saw that as the manifestation of what he called the March generation, um, that young people had by that point had five, six, maybe almost seven years by that point of having March in their classrooms of John Lewis and I and Nate going to visit their uh, schools and libraries and speaking to them and, and giving these workshops. 
Um, and, and that was the manifestation of our goal. We actually wrote a, uh, article, um, in a small newspaper in, in Atlanta called creative loafing when March book one first came out, they said we were trying to start a new nonviolent revolution in America. And for John Lewis to see that come to fruition before he passed, um, to me, that was the greatest gift I could give him. You wrote the trilogy with him yet. I guess that wasn't enough. What inspired run? You know, people have this misunderstanding about the civil rights movement that after Selma and after the signing of the Voting Rights Act, um, the pushback uh, was defeated. The white supremacists were defeated. Um, And in fact, what really came about is just two days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act, John Lewis was down in South Georgia getting arrested, protesting. um, And for that next year, really endured what became the the. Um, foundation for much of the pushback we're seeing against voting rights today in America. Um, And I think it was also this perception that people had created that John Lewis was always moving up, always doing well. And and they glossed over and ignored the setbacks. And I think it was very important to the congressman that he showed that even though he had, you know, been to the White House, received a pen from LBJ, um, all these sort of things that, that he suffered these major setbacks almost immediately afterwards. I mean, it was less than a year after the signing of the Voting Rights Act that he was ousted as chairman of SNCC. Um, and, and less than a year later, uh, less than a year after the signing of the voting rights, he also resigned from SNCC because he felt certain members of SNCC were undermining Dr. King um, for their own means. And I think everything we're going through as a society, he really felt like he had to give a roadmap for people not just to uh, continue thinking that, that things were going to just move forward automatically, that you had to see the setbacks, you had to see the pushback. But then I think there's also this other message that John Lewis was very concerned about, uh, particularly at the end of his life, which is that, you know, there wasn't this uh, pipeline emerging of young activists becoming public servants. And so that's why we called it run, because first you march and then you run. First you're an activist and then you need to become a public servant. And he believed very, very strongly that we needed more uh, public servants with their hearts in the right place. You know, he used to say about some of his colleagues in the Congress that there are these people who love the world, but they don't love people. And I think he really wanted more people that loved other people to be in public service. I'm speaking with Andrew Aiden. He's going to be at the book fair in downtown Miami next Sunday at four o'clock in the afternoon at the Chapman Miami-Dade College Wolfson campus. He'll be in conversation with Congresswoman Frederica Wilson and moderated by Russell Motley, journalist and professor at Florida Memorial University. And Andrew Aiden co-wrote Run with Congressman John Lewis. I had a look at Run, and it's really fascinating. A few things that really stood out for me was how personal it was and all the names of people that you're memorializing uh, that would have been lost in history. For instance, uh, can you tell me about Sammy Young? Well, Sammy Young uh, was a SNCC, young SNCC member who was shot and killed in Alabama um, for trying to buy a pack of cigarettes and not using a, a, a black-only restroom. And I think he was someone the congressman knew personally, um, and it came at a time when... Many of the the advances that we saw in law 
through the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, um, we're not coming to exist in life. And I think we've witnessed this same murder over and over and over again since then. This young man who was trying to, to help make his community better and who got frustrated because there was this uh, recalcitrant, essentially white supremacist, who refused to let him use uh, the same bathroom as everyone else. I think about how many situations, whether it's the young man who is murdered uh, for playing his music too loud or all these or other instances where it really came down to someone using violence as a form of uh, terror to a community. And I think it, Sammy Young, as well as the murder of Jonathan Daniels, which we also show in Run, um, these are instances that we have to remember when we look at the context of today. When people say, no, this is different, it really isn't. These threads of white supremacy, these threads of terror with this arbitrary violence perpetrated along uh, for racial purposes, this has been going on for decades in the South. And these young men, they paid the ultimate price. And I think John Lewis wanted to make sure that their names were remembered. Uh, much in the same way that we remember uh, George Floyd, we should be remembering Sammy Young and Jonathan Daniels and, and the many people during the movement who, who paid the last full measure of devotion. I forgot to ask you, you mentioned SNCC a couple times. For our listeners who are not familiar, that's, it's, the acronym is SNCC. What is SNCC? It's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It was founded in 1960 at Shaw University and is arguably the most successful, most powerful student-led movement in the history of the United States. Um, I think every one of us should know uh, the history of SNCC because of how much of an impact it had, even on the civil rights movement, but also on, on our lives today. I mean, many of the most radical reforms that the civil rights movement pushed for came from SNCC membership. Um, if you look at the Democratic Convention in 1964 that pushed the Democratic Party to force uh, Southern delegations to integrate, that was a SNCC-led initiative. Um, when you look at uh, the March on Washington and the platform that they pushed and then the legislation that ultimately resulted in the Civil Rights Act, many of those reforms were led and fought for and, and really won by the young people of SNCC. But really, SNCC all started with the sit-in movement. And I think about it often because John Lewis would say, we need a new SNCC, but not the same. It's got to be for this generation. And it was wonderful. I participated actually a few weeks ago um, in the SNCC 60th anniversary conference. And it was so amazing to see all the former SNCC members coming together, the ways in which they've continued to practice the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence and the values of SNCC throughout their whole lives. Um, it's an incredibly important organization that I, I think is absolutely essential that it be taught in schools and also that young people understand it so that they understand their power and what they can do when they organize together. Another uh, aspect of the movement in the 60s were the Freedom Riders. Who, who and what were the Freedom Riders? The Freedom Riders came out of a uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, I believe it was Boynton v. Virginia, um, in 1961. Um, it was organized by an organization called CORE, which was led by James Farmer. And CORE stands for the Congress of Racial Equality. It was a, one of the older civil rights organizations. And James Farmer, you probably know from the great debaters. And the idea was simple, that there would be a group of young people, and people not so young as the congressman would say, 
who would ride the interstate busways uh, that at that time were segregated or should, shouldn't have been. The Boynton decision made it clear that they shouldn't have been, but had not actually been implemented. And so they began, I believe it was May 1st, 1961. They set out from Washington, D.C. to travel ultimately to New Orleans, but they never made it. Um, they were beaten, firebombed, uh, arrested and sent to jail. Many of the Freedom Riders actually ended up in Parchman Penitentiary in Mississippi that you know about from Faulkner and other literature. Um, it was a dark, dark place, but they sent them there to intimidate them. But when you look back on it, they forced this conflict that resulted in an Interstate Commerce Commission ruling that Robert Kennedy helped shepherd through that desegregated the busways throughout the United States, forced this implementation. And people lose sight of the fact that without the Freedom Rides, you would not have had the March on Washington because you couldn't have brought that many people, that many black and white folks together in Washington unless you had a desegregated busway. And I think the Freedom Rides are incredibly important to understand so that you understand how the movement built upon its success. Right. First, you integrated the lunch counters in 1960 and the sit-ins. Then 1961, you have the Freedom Rides and you, you desegregate the busways. That then allows you to hold the March on Washington so that then you can push for federal legislation that brings about even more protections. And we have to keep, keep that vision of the fact that they were playing a very long game in their, their pursuits. But the Freedom Riders themselves showed unbelievable courage. Dr. King wouldn't even join the Freedom Rides because he was genuinely and legitimately afraid of being murdered. Three of the Freedom Riders, uh, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and uh, Michael Schwerner, were were murdered, and uh, that became a rallying point uh, for around the country of the dangers of what these young people were doing. Uh, but in your book, your your uh, memoir, your memoir uh, novel, uh, you mentioned that it's what overshadowed that was the Vietnam War. And that played a big part in the civil rights movement as well. Just to be clear, uh, James Cheney, uh, Mickey Schwerner, and Andy Goodman were participants in the Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. They were young, uh, two white, one black, um, young men who'd come down to Mississippi uh, to participate in this effort that was led by Bob Moses, uh, who recently passed away. Um, And the idea was that they were going to do this mass voter registration drive and try and put as many African-Americans on the voting rolls in in Mississippi as possible because they were having such brutal consequences. I mean, in many ways, the murder of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman was just the most public example. I can recall uh, reading research where during the Freedom Summer, um, when they were looking for the bodies of Schwerner and Cheney and Goodman, they actually found bodies of other people that they didn't even know were missing. And it was that sort of place in Mississippi. Um, But you're right. Their murders were overshadowed by the war in Vietnam. It was just at that time that the Gulf of Tonkin incident happened. I think it was within a week or two of the uh, disappearance of Schwerner, Cheney and Goodman. And we we forget that the war in Vietnam was was just starting to simmer as the Selma campaign happened. But by the time uh, Selma uh, was over and the Voting Rights Act was signed into law, Vietnam had really emerged as the front page issue. And it had pushed civil rights as a whole um, into the background. That was a real problem for SNCC as an organizing entity because so many of their members were then eligible for the draft. Um, And they were being drafted in particularly high numbers um, because they were black. And a disproportionate number of draftees were black because they couldn't, uh, they didn't get the college deferments and other things that allowed them to avoid service. 
And ultimately, it was Julian Bond's opposition, his support for the SNCC statement that was issued in January of 1966, opposing the first the Vietnam War, being the first uh, civil rights organization to oppose the Vietnam War. This was a, more than a year before Dr. King gave his Riverside Baptist Church speech in um, April of 1967, the, the, the famous anti-war speech of his. Um, and, and so when Julian supported that statement of SNCC's, the Georgia General Assembly refused to seat him, which is nuts when you keep consider it in the context that the Georgia General Assembly had statues of other anti-war activists on the grounds of the state capitol. The only difference being that they were white, Julian was black, and the white folks who had the statues were also noted members of the Klan. So they couldn't argue that it was a moral reason. They bent themselves into a pretzel to try and, and make this about the war when in fact they didn't have a, a moral box to stand on, a moral leg to stand on. Um, and, and I think the war in some ways was used as much as a, used as a weapon against the civil rights community at that time. Um, and I think we really haven't, we haven't even begun to study the full depth of that yet. Was it Julian Bond in, in your book, Run, who, who said that and if you're African-American, you had just as much chance to die in America as you did in Vietnam? Yeah, I, I think that was a sentiment that was pretty common among uh, many of the people within SNCC. Um, just as you mentioned earlier, the murder of uh, Sammy Young and the murders of, of Jonathan Daniels. I mean, I think in some ways that stoked the opposition because how how do you reconcile the fact that Young people were being sent to Vietnam to essentially kill a, a force that had never truthfully attacked the United States, right? This was all based on the, the sort of Cold War domino theory. And yet, to these activists, they faced a greater threat in their day-to-day -day life from the white supremacists in their community than they ever did from the Vietnamese. And... You know, I thought about that in the context of growing up myself in Georgia. Um, my father was a Turkish Muslim immigrant, and I was 18 years old on September 11th. Um, and I heard all these things about, you know, Muslims, Muslim immigrants, their children. I mean, Trump certainly fostered that narrative as well. And yet growing up in Atlanta, the most dangerous person that I knew of was the person who blew up the Olympic Park who blew up the abortion clinic that was on my way to school. I missed that bombing by about 20 minutes on that day, right? It was the white supremacists that were the most dangerous to me in, in my life growing up. And I think I felt that understanding with the congressman and, and with the members of the civil rights movement in a deep and profound way, because I remembered that terror that I felt as a young person growing up in Atlanta with those bombings happening. I'm speaking with Andrew Aiden, who co-wrote the new graphic memoir with Congressman John Lewis uh, before Congressman Lewis passed away. Uh, I found it interesting in your book, you mentioned, I think it's Loudest County, Alabama, in 1965, that 80 percent of the voting age of uh, African Americans, none of those 80 percent of the county were registered to vote. So... Voting is really what it comes down to. That's 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 the power that people have. Well, it's twofold. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, in Lowndes County, this was a favorite statistic of the congressman. He said uh, nearly 80 percent of the voting age population was black 
And yet not a single person, not a single person of color was registered to vote. That's what he would say. And, and that came down to uh, fear, terror, intimidation and Jim Crow era laws that made it nearly impossible for people to register and vote, many of which are being used today. I mean, moving of the polling places, uh, poll taxes. It's similar to the voter ID uh, legislation packing into precincts so that there are these incredibly long lines like these were the tactics that were used in Lowndes County. And in what would happen in Lowndes County, it was twofold. One, they needed to be able to register and vote. And two, they needed good people to vote for. In many ways, it's the same reason why we wrote Run, because we were trying to encourage this March generation to actually participate as public servants. Because, again, we're fighting for the right to vote, but we need better people to vote for. Um, and I think it's uncanny to me in many ways how similar the underlying motivations, many of the challenges are. And that's why I believe John Lewis's life is such an important roadmap. When we see uh, voting legislation passed that moves these precincts, that does all these sort of things to make it harder and more difficult to vote, um, these are the children of the white supremacists and those Jim Crow era laws to bear now on our generation. We're still feeling those effects today. I think just recently this, this, the uh, Congress has struck down fair voting laws. I think, you know, you had the Shelby County decision in 2013, which was a very unfortunate decision by the Supreme Court that the congressman uh, said stuck a dagger in the heart of the Voting Rights Act. Um, Now we see Congress refusing to advance legislation that even that ruling called for, which would repair and modernize uh, voting rights legislation uh, in this country. And it's such a shame uh, that that's happening. But I believe it's purely on a partisan basis. It's the same reason why. Uh, certain members of Congress blocked legislation to guarantee secure elections in 2020. They didn't want there to be funding to protect our elections from foreign interference. Um, now you're seeing this legislation being blocked that would uh, protect from from suffering many of the same uh, obstacles that were used during the Jim Crow era. And this continues to be one of the greatest threats, if not the greatest threat to our democracy. Um, but it's purely on a partisan basis. And it's unfortunate because if you can't win an election, um, based on your ideas, uh, it is anti-American to say uh, as a policy that we would rather just exclude some people from being able to vote. Andrew Aiden, co-author of the new graphic memoir, Run, co-authored with Congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis. And Andrew will be at the book fair next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock on the campus of Miami-Dade College. One of the turning points in your book, Run, and subsequently in John Lewis's life, was uh, when, I guess, when SNCC decided that the, the nonviolent approach is not working, and it was a, a real setback for, for John Lewis. Was that the start of the Black Panther Party? Well, the Black Panther Party, as we know it, was actually started in uh, San Francisco in October of '66. The Lowndes County Freedom Organization that was begun uh, before that actually started in some ways in 64 and 65 as they first started organizing in Lowndes County. But what you what what came out of Lowndes County was actually the idea of the Black Panther. Two individuals, Cortland Cox and Jennifer Lawson, made a series of comic books beginning in, I believe, about February of 1966 as they prepared for uh, elections in Lowndes County that demonstrated the roles and responsibilities 
of the particular candidates that were going to be on the ballot. And in that, each party had to have a mascot on the ballot. And the Democrats mascot in the South was the rooster. And so the Lowndes County Freedom Organization wanted to create a mascot that would eat that rooster. So they based the Black Panther logo on the, it was Clark College at the time. Now we know it as Clark Atlanta University um, in Atlanta. It was, uh, they were the Panthers. They were the Black Panthers. And so uh, Lawson, oh, the name's escaping me, but there was two others who, who participated in, in recreating the logo. Um, and they used it on uh, billboards. They used it in these comic books. They used it on their voter guides. And that's where the idea of the Black Panther uh, as a political symbol came from. Um, and it's interesting to me because we know about the Black Panther Party in California and we know about the Black Panther comic book, which I believe came out that summer of 1966 uh, or maybe a little bit later. But all of those were predated by the comics that Cortland and Jennifer used. And, and we're excited, too, because uh, we've been working with Cortland and Jennifer to bring those comics back as a free ebook that schools can use. Um, and we're going to have more news about that uh, relatively soon. But it's it, they're stunning. They're beautiful. I, 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 as much as I was influenced by Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story in the creation of March, I was influenced by their comics, these Lowndes County comics and the creation of fun. Um, but to get to your larger point, yeah, there was a lot of pushback against nonviolence as a philosophy and discipline. Um, that was to John Lewis, the core of his being. You know, he was a disciple of Jim Lawson. He was a disciple of Dr. King, of Bayard Rustin. Um, these were people who practiced nonviolence, not just as a tool or a tactic, but as a way of life, as a way of living. And at that time, uh, and I can't blame them, right? I mean, August of 1965 is the Watts uprising, right? And you're seeing countless African-Americans beaten. Some are killed. Um, you've watched Dr. King and John Lewis and countless other organizers who who were at that forefront of the movement being beaten and killed for years. And there was this real philosophical question, uh, how many more must die? Stokely Carmichael, who was one of the proponents of uh, the other side, essentially, um, wrote in a review, this is all in the end notes of Ron, too, if you want more on it, wrote in, in a New York magazine about how, in fact, he felt that Seeing Dr. King and others be beaten so many times, be thrown in jail, actually is what caused the Watts uprising, because it was the question of how much can one man take? And I, I think that's a fair question, but I think that's also what made John Lewis and his colleagues so special, that you could face that much violence and that many setbacks and, and still hold on to your beliefs and, and make that the core of your being. And I think that's what has propelled them. They, they are a founding father now uh, of our country. And I think it was because of that belief and that faith in nonviolence um, and civil disobedience. It's really incredible that he stood his ground and, and stayed nonviolent with all the opposition he was against. And I even get the feeling that even though the uh, Voting Rights Act was passed, the, the federal government, the FBI, was an obstacle as well particularly once they started opposing the Vietnam War, right? I mean, you had John Doerr, who was the head of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. He was in Selma. He was down in um, Alabama and, and even during the Lowndes County um, organizing. But then as the SNCC started to oppose the Vietnam War, 
um, they lost a lot of friends. And that would have been in January of 66 when that really started. And they were the first ones uh, to encounter that. And so um, it's funny. It's not funny. It's actually kind of sad. Um, many of the ways we, which we were able to do primary research for both March and Run was by using FBI files that had been recently declassified. Um, and by making those public, we were then able to see essentially, in many cases, recordings and transcripts of their conversations so that we were able to present them in an in a accurate way. But at the same time, it, it was it was startling. I can remember sitting in the congressman's office with him when they gave him his FBI file and going through that and him just having this amazed look on his face at how much they knew and how much they had been watching him and his colleagues. Um, it was startling to him. And, and this was uh, someone who was sitting in office as a member of Congress. I, I can't imagine what it was like for the people who n never received the same sort of treatment that John Lewis did as, as he did in later life. Even within SNCC, I, I get the impression that uh, in, in, in your book, Run, he, there was a question of who was the blackest. That must have been incredibly hurtful to John Lewis. I think it struck at the core of John Lewis's beliefs. He fought both in the movement and later in life. I think in many ways, the, the symbolism of the teams that have created these books was part of that, to have an integrated democracy. Um, he was a devout believer in the beloved community, as it was defined by Dr. King, which is essentially an interracial democracy in which all, I think they would say it is, is all God's children are created equal. But at the time, in, in SNCC, that was not the, the prevailing wisdom. It wasn't cool, you know? And this question of who was the blackest and how to push the white members out of SNCC, that was at the forefront of their conversation by 1966. And that was something John Lewis was just not willing to give in on. And, and it was funny because, you know, being on his congressional staff for so long, um, I witnessed those same struggles. There were people who... Uh, would ask him, you know, why are, why do you do so many events with that white boy? And they'd be talking about me because uh, we probably did 200 events together on stage and going to schools and libraries. And the congressman would say, well, first, he's not white. He's Turkish. And like, thank you, sir. But I think it just. It just was a part of who he was. It was a part of his DNA. He believed that everyone was truly created equal and he didn't see. I mean, in many ways, it's like what Malcolm X said in 1964. I mean, just months before he was shot, right? John Lewis goes and meets Malcolm X in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, and they're at the New Stanley Hotel. And they're sitting there having lunch. And Malcolm's full paranoia, rightfully so. Like, he won't sit with his back exposed. He's up against the wall, you know, all those sort of things. And he says to John Lewis, essentially, uh, in effect, that that a black only struggle will not succeed, that the only way to succeed is a multiracial coalition of the poor. That is the only way to bring about true equality. And of course, four months later, they shot him. And then you look at it the other way, Dr. King goes on the poor people's campaign in, in 1968. And that's when he's shot and killed. Bobby Kennedy's political campaign comes around to the idea of, of many of these progressive reforms that would balance the financial books of the country to help out the poor. And then he's shot and killed. In many ways, it is once you touch the money, once you go after, like, it's, it's like they're fine to foster this, this debate about 
that, that creates a division, right, between different communities of color. Um, but once people start to unify around the idea of sharing America's wealth, that's the third rail, and that'll get you killed. Andrew Aiden, he'll be at the Miami Book Fair next Sunday afternoon at 4 to talk about the new graphic memoir that he co-wrote with Congressman John Lewis called Run. Did Congressman Lewis, did he was he able to finish the book with you? Yeah, we, you know, it was hard those last months because we're, we're trying to quarantine with COVID. And so I'm like sneaking pages under his door at, at his house. And he's like hiding stuff from me behind his planters. And I know that it gave him joy to see the, the art, to see the pages come together. I remember one of the last times we spoke, he joked that he couldn't wait to go to San Diego Comic-Con again. You know, I, I think that's the thing that uh, I hope people remember. John Lewis loved making these, you know, and, and and it wasn't just because of the awards or anything, although they made him really happy. It was because he got to go participate in these communities and be with people. I remember the first time we went to a comic convention together, he said, he said, my God, this is a happening. And he's like, this is unreal. And then he asked me what that was. And I had to tell him it was Wolverine. Um, <laughs> you know, these are, this was, in, in some ways, this is his happy place. Nate, Nate and I used to joke. Uh, uh, there were a few years where we went to comic con and he couldn't go because he had votes or something like that. And he would call us like five or six times a day. What are you guys doing? You know, <laughs> and he just he wanted to be there so badly. Um, and and that is something really special because he could have spent his whole life, the whole end of his life in fancy rooms with fancy people wearing fancy clothes, eating fancy food. And instead, he spent it traipsing all over the country showing young kids his comic books eating at burger kings and wherever else we got to eat at late at night after we'd finished our second or third event of the day um you know i'd i'd take him to events in congress too and and you know they'd have all this fancy food laid out and he wouldn't eat it and then he'd ask if we could stop by mcdonald's on the way home <laughs> you know and i i i miss that man who demonstrated so clearly that the power we have doesn't come from status symbols or anything else. The power that we have comes from how hard we're willing to work and how devoted we are to our beliefs. And all the rest of our lives should be devoted to loving people. And he would say I was like a son to him. And I say, even today, he was like a father to me. And in many ways, he showed me how to love the world. And I miss him. Andrew Aiden, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Michael.